Friends old and very new. Uh, here at St. George's, we've been in this season of Trinity Tide where we've been exploring what it means to follow uh, God, follow Jesus, uh, given the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, and given the fact that God has gifted the church, his spirit is empowering love to do God's work in this world. And of course, these are very fancy things to say, but, you know, as a Christian, you think to yourself, well, what does that actually mean? What does that look like in my life to live in the light of the fact of the resurrection and this Holy Spirit? So that's what we reach for. And we take each Sunday reading, we uh, hear what God has to say, and hopefully we discern uh, maybe a lesson of encouragement for the week ahead. And today's readings, uh, though scattered across time and delivering what will seem like a very different message for each, is actually giving us a unified picture. And it's a picture of warning, perhaps. Uh, not a warning of a threat, for example, but the warning you might give a friend if you see them walking and they don't see a hole ahead of them, right? You might give them a warning, hey, watch out. There's a danger ahead and you should be aware of this. And the, the message, the, the warning is something like this. It's very possible to follow Jesus, right? To make a decision in your mind, in your heart, to receive an identity from God, from Jesus, as a follower, as a disciple, that means as a student of Jesus. And yet, when it actually matters to relinquish that identity and therefore miss out on the life and love of God that God so desperately wants us to enjoy. All right, that's if everything else I say, I miss out on I want you to hear that one. Um, and that's what we're hearing. And there's three different ways that we've heard it. Uh, the first reading you heard was Genesis, the story of Jacob and Esau. They're very important characters in the Bible. They, Jacob especially, uh, his family, through his family, God is going to create a nation, the nation of Israel. And through his family, he's going to bless the world. Namely because Jesus, who we follow, comes from this family. Right? But here we see two brothers, or twin brothers, Jacob, who God has given this promise, and Esau, although they're twins, technically was born first, the older brother, who believes that actually because he's the eldest, he will be the leader of the family and therefore receive all of the earthly and divine blessings. That was a very normal thing to think at that time. It's a word that we might not use too often. We call it, it's called primogeniture. The eldest boy in the family receives most, if not all, of the wealth of the family and the lion's share of divine blessing. But God, being God, is not too interested in the human patterns of power that we set up. God is interested in what God is interested in. So he chooses to bless Jacob. So there's a tension between these two brothers. In the story we heard, Esau is a man of the field and he goes out to hunt. Doesn't catch anything, he comes home and he's clearly hungry. And he thinks he's going to die. And so he asks his brother for some soup. And Jacob, crafty Jacob, says, yeah, I'll give you some soup. But 
sell me or trade me for your birthright. And remarkably, Esau says, sure, whatever, take it, give me the soup. And in that small, almost ludicrous moment, Esau trades everything, millions, you could say, for a bowl of soup. Now, as the ancient readers, and even readers today, if you, you, know, you get that sort of this, that pattern in the story, you think to yourself, this is funny. This is silly. Why would anyone trade millions of dollars, land, property, for a bowl of soup? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Well, you saw that. And says, I only have about 15 minutes right now. I can't get too soft. I gotta get a little hard. Ah, we do the same thing. We trade the infinite love of God, his joy and his peace, and we trade it for small things like material comfort. We trade it for being seen as polite or sophisticated in the eyes of our peers. Right? Yeah, we trade it. Because what we've been exploring these past few Sundays, and so I'm reminding today, is that to follow Jesus, which is the best thing anyone could do, is also one of the most awkward things anyone could do. Because in our time, in our culture, being a, a Christian and believing what Jesus says, actually believing it and following it, doesn't play nice often with the spirit of the age and the culture we inhabit. To be a follower of Jesus is to be set apart. The shape of your ethics and your values in some ways will overlap with your neighbors and what we all agree on, but in some crucial ways you will not. There will be conflict, and then you'll have a choice to make. And usually the awkward one, right? Oh, Seth, all the guys are going out for the weekend. We're all going uh, fishing. You should totally come up. Oh, I can't because my Sundays are devoted to God. What? Yeah, on Sundays, that's time I've set aside to give thanks and worship Jesus. Hey man, there's this like a uh, cool trip we want to take. Everyone ship me in, put some money in, and let's go. Oof, it's not in my budget. I actually, because I give 10% of my earnings to God, to church and charity, actually it's not in my budget to do this trip, have this fun. What? And the list could go on. How following Jesus, the shape of life that you inherit by following Jesus, is out of set often with the spirit of the age in his heart. And the danger that Jesus talks about in that parable with the seeds, going, you know, throwing, uh, sowing seeds, is that we're kind of like the ground. And God is sharing his message of life and hope and love to us. But if we're so worried or concerned that we're going to be out of step and seem to be uh, unwinsome or uncool, we're not going to fit in with our neighbors and our peers, those seed of God's love. And just that's. And we risk losing the gift that God wants us to have. In effect, we're trading the love of the infinite God for a bowl of soup. 
So when we look at Esau's story, making a lot pretty silly, it's meant for us to very soberly reflect on our lives. And really, when it comes to it, the truth is, many of you don't know, so I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Here I'm talking to those who are Christians, who follow Jesus. Because there's a shape your life has to take. And so we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, does the shape of my life proclaim that I'm following Jesus? Or am I trading God love for sin? That's what Paul talks about in the letter to the Romans that we heard this morning. It felt kind of uh, like a little labyrinth. You know, Paul's writing is the least clear. But you've heard a comparison he's often making. If you reread it, it's in the bulletin. He's always talking about, well, there's a life of the flesh here. But we're meant to live a life of the spirit here. There's a flesh here and life of the spirit here. And what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not meant to live according to the flesh, Whatever that means, we'll put a question mark there. For men to live according to the Spirit. Now, the flesh can mean many things in the Bible, but in this instance, what it means is that, think of it this way: it's the desires that we, the desires that we flourish, that flourish in our hearts, the desires that we have that are out of step with what God wants to have. All right. We all have we all have desires. I'm not saying desire is bad, but there are some desires that are anchored in our endless appetite for more, more comfort, more money, which means using more power, more influence, more security, apart from God. Because if there's one thing that destroys an honest spirituality, that destroys an honest faith, is to conceptualize and desire and live into a life that is not fundamentally connected to God. It is very easy and very tempting to set up a life and a lifestyle without reference to God. Money is the easiest one, of course. The more money and comfort you have, the less worries you have, you don't bring your heart to God because you're not worried. That's why Jesus, more than anything else, if you read the gospel, more than anything else, Jesus speaks against money. You think by the news that he talked about sex and all these other devices, he talk about it. I mean, he does, but very little. He talks about money. At some point, very clearly, it's nearly impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says it to his friends. His closest followers, because they believed the more money you have, clearly you're more blessed. You're smarter, you're wiser, God's blessing you for being a better person. And Jesus said, no, money is that corrosive poison that will deaden your heart to my voice. Because you'll begin to think you don't need me. Right? Really what you'll do, money is a credit card, right? It's an access, quick access to enjoying imminently whatever pleasures or desires that you have. And that will kill an honest faith. So there. That's a big part of what Jesus said. 
There's, it's hard to miss that parable. It's talking about money. And yet, I don't want to land there and be like, well, yes. As important as that is, that's an extended dialogue that we're going to have in this church as time goes on. But there's actually, uh, I think, a more silent and, in a way, deadly killer to our faith that's related to money, for sure. But that's the one that we have to talk about a little bit. When Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit, so here we're learning, well, how do I follow God? Yeah, the flesh is base desires. But the flesh, that word is also a word pointing the reader to the earliest story found in the Bible of the human race. In our Bible study, we've been reading in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve. The story, the primordial story of creation where God creates humanity and puts humanity, Adam and Eve, in the garden and says, hey, I've made this beautiful world for you to enjoy. Do what you like, just don't eat from this fruit. Don't get a meal, don't do that, but just live your life. And then Adam and Eve decide to say, ah, yeah, I see God there, but it tastes the fruit. And they ate it. And in so doing, they made a choice. The choice was to say, yeah, we see that God is there, but it's actually better if, I, if we autonomously decide what's right and wrong for us. We set the terms of engagement and we'll decide how we live our lives. And in that moment, severing our connection from God, setting up our own lives, and essentially setting up ourselves as little gods in conflict with the one true God. That is the flesh. That's what happened at the beginning of our history, and that's what St. Paul's talking about. That posture of the heart that so desperately wants to determine our lives and affect our reality without reference to God. And one of the surest ways that we do that in our world, so I'm talking now about our culture, I can't speak to my Guatemalan culture or other countries, I'm only speaking about here, is with a little phrase, a very crappy phrase, the most judo move that we in the West make, and it's this one. Well, I don't know about all the religious stuff, Seth. All that really matters is that I'm a good person. All that matters is that I'm good. And with that little phrase right there, that is a silent killer of the honesty in God. That will destroy your trust in Jesus. Because when you say, well, all that matters is good, yeah, I make some mistakes, I'm not perfect, but all that matters is that I'm a good person. Well, first of all, God has never said that. God has never said that. In fact, what God has said repeatedly through his word is that God is holy and completely perfect, the source of life and love. And only perfect goodness can exist in his presence. Now, none of us say we're perfect, perfectly good. I've never met a human who told me that. Right? And I'll never say that. It's way false. But when we say, well, all that matters is really good, or we're actually saying, hey, God, I see that you have your standard, but yet I'm bringing that down. I have the right. There's a table, and you're sitting at a table, and I'm also sitting at as an equal partner, and I'm disagreeing with you. 
doesn't act you. I mean, we wouldn't put we would, we wouldn't put up that in our own lives. I would chuckle. Very, it would be very funny for me if my daughter Eve, all of eight years old, sat at the table with me. Like, well, I know that you pay the rent and you do all things in the house, but Dad, I'm gonna we're gonna redraw the rules of this family, and I'm gonna have my say. That would tickle me pink. Very cute. And I'd probably be like, sweetheart, you better go clean your room right now. Get. Because it's absurd. It's absurd in the extreme for any child to come to the parent and say, yeah, even though you do everything, have all the responsibility, legal, uh, we're equals. No, that's not true at all. It's the most false thing I could ever hear. And the, and, the, and the gap between a human and God is even greater. It's even greater. In fact, the gap is so great that our goodness can never bridge our hearts to God. When we chose against God, we chose against life itself. Very serious problem. A problem that only God could address, and God has addressed it. In Jesus. Well, Sarah, I hear what you're saying, the Bible, all this theology. I really just think, it's just, I gotta be good. What's wrong with just being kind to our neighbors and doing my better charity and just being nice? That's gotta be enough. I'm gonna tell you a story. And if you come to St. George's and you know the story, let me tell it in this. But it's important. Because this might help. It's a thought experiment. I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine a single mom. Single mom, she has a son, a young son. Doesn't have much. She works two jobs, works herself to the bone to provide for her child. And the child does really well in school. And she's putting in hours to make sure that he has what he needs. Right? His uniform, his books, his pencils. And the kid receives it. He's doing really well in school. He goes through high school, gets all the marks, gets accepted at some of the top schools in the nation, and he decides to go to one of the best. It's expensive, though. So the mom takes up a third job, and just working hard, working herself to the bone to provide for her son to make sure that he doesn't have to work. He just has to go to school, get the marks, do the work. And so she works so hard, he gets through university, he gets accepted to a fabulous law school. She keeps working hard for him. And eventually he does so well, he gets invited to some of the top law schools in the country. And he accepts a wonderful, a wonderful job offer. Six figures to start. Sky's the limit in terms of his vocation, his career. And let's say he accepts that job. And once he accepts it, he never calls his mom again. Maybe he'll call her on Christmas. Maybe a postcard on Easter. But doesn't talk to her. But let's say he's... A really swell guy, kind to his friends, does a soup kitchen thing once a month, you know, writes checks to local charities, supports them financially. He's generous with a lot of the extra money that he has. Really nice guy, never calls his mom. Now you tell me, is he a good guy? Is he good? It's not a slam dunk, is it? It's complicated. It gets fuzzy. 
And that guy is all of us when it comes to God. Because God has given us everything. He gives us the life that we have, the air that we breathe. Even right now, he's sustaining us with the breath of his power. And I often don't think about it when I live my life. I make my own plans. Right? I make promises to God, to God and I forget that I made promises to did you guys keep with a journal, a spiritual journal, or anything like that? It's scary to go back to those old posts. Then you start realizing, whoa, I forget the things that I tell God about how I live my life. I forget in such a way that if we had a friendship and you forgot about me that way, you'd cut me out of your life. Right? I don't want to be too hard, but I need to be honest. So if I, knowing who I am, were to step forward and say, well, I'm basically a good person, therefore I deserve God's good attention, that's a very scary circumstance. At least it's not honest. It's not true who you are. Which is why when God, seeing us in the brokenness of the world that we've created, the endless war, the endless strife, the endless selfishness, the endless hatred. God came to us in the person of Jesus. At one of the worst times in human history, Jesus comes into this world. He lives, he takes on a human life. He lives a life we should have lived. He dies the death that we should have died. He doesn't stay dead. He's resurrected to a new life. And in that new life, he says to all of us, there's a brokenness in you. There's a hurt in you. You have been hurt by others. And you have also hurt people yourself. There's a sickness in this world. And I'm the surgeon. I've come to heal it. And the healing doesn't come by you propping up a resume and saying how good you are. The healing comes by entering a posture of humility and repentance, saying, I'm sorry for what I've done, and receiving my life and my love. And I'm the kind of person that no matter how many mistakes you make, if you say I'm sorry, I want to do better, God, I will always be there. Before you finish your sentence, I'm there with my forgiveness, my grace, and my love. And that, that pattern of life will heal your life, and in fact, that heals the world. But you have to do the uncomfortable thing. As St. Paul talks about, we have to put our weapons down, right? Because as human beings, we're not like neutral parties that are like, oh, Jesus is here. We're not neutral. We know God and Jesus are there. We don't want God and Jesus to be there. And we are an enmity with God. And we have to put our weapons down and say, God, if I'm honest with you, I'd rather you weren't there. I wish that somehow I was uh, determined to right wrong and live life how I want to, but now I'm putting this down because when I reflect on my life and I'm honest about it, yeah, some of the good that I've done is outweighed by some of the gross stuff that I've done. Things that I don't talk about at parties and things that I might not even share with my partner, ever. But you see it. You see my heart all the way down. 
and you love me. In fact, you gave your life for me. Thank you for that. Those are my words. You have your own. But when you put your weapons down, the seed that Jesus is talking about, it's not going to bounce out. You suddenly become fertile soil. Your life becomes a garden where God's love can flourish and grow. 30, 60, 100 times fold. God is not a tyrant. He's not going to force his love on you. You have to choose it. The choice is a kind of a death. Jesus says, those who seek to hold on to their life will lose it. But those who, for my sake, lose their life, they will find it. And he showed us the pattern. It's the cross. And somehow, in death, that's the surest avenue to new life. And in our small death, we don't have to go to a cross. Heaven forbid, our death is the death of the illusion where goodness is all it takes and coming nice. You have to put that to death. And the life that is resurrected is a life of honesty. You can speak who you are. I know who I am. You know the mistakes that I've made. You guys come to church, you know my mistakes and who I am. I don't have to lie about it. I'm going to pretend to be I'm not. I can be who I am. Mistakes and all, I can own it and say I am loved. And I am completely accepted by God. And I have no shame. And that, that allows me to love my wife without reserve, my children without reserve. I have enough space in my heart so that you share your pains with me. I can hold that. By God's mercy and grace, it's not of my own doing. It's the gift of God. It's living in the Spirit, not of the flesh. That's the life of the Spirit. And that's the, that's not a set thing. Anyone who follows Jesus, the follower of Christ can do that. That's for you. And some of you didn't have that life already. You'd be glad to be your friend and so encouraged. And some of you, maybe you want it. Because you know you need it. Maybe let's stop worrying too much about what our neighbors think about Jesus and how included just a Christian and all of it and all these awkward politics. Let that go. Let's not worry too much about that. Don't worry about being polite. Don't worry about safeguarding the comforts. Don't worry about safeguarding the resume. In humility, surrender that to Jesus. Accept his life and love. Experience his grace. And live the life that God always knew for you to have. It's right there for the taking. If only you choose it. Together, let's pray. Gracious and loving God. And God, we give thanks and praise that in the midst of our daily life, the choices that we make, often we're not thinking about you. We don't remember who you are, God. We thank you right now that you don't forget us, that you hold us in the palm of your hands, always inviting us to turn to you in repentance and faith. So God, I pray for each person in this room, wherever they are in their spiritual journey, I pray that whatever is blocking them from an honest relationship with you, I pray that you remove that. And I pray that we might hear your voice of life and love, and I pray that you give us the courage to follow you. Help us in this, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.